appreciate the reading, Georgie. And let me make a couple of announcements before we actually get into the lesson. First of all, I know we have visitors. We're glad you're here. We want you to come back and be with us at every opportunity you can. And I hope that uh, our members put forth a special effort to make you feel welcome. And I trust they will do that. Um, a couple of things that you see announced in the bulletin from time to time, and I just want to reiterate that. Um, on the back of the bulletin, there's a little blurb there that says, check the bulletin board out in the foyer uh, for upcoming events. That'll be the one against this wall here. Um, there are some things that we scheduled. Those of you that are interested in the movie night, uh, singing, practice, etc., there's announcements for that on that upcoming events, and so please check that. And if you'll check it, uh, there's one always up there for usually about the next month's worth of things, special events like that. Secondly, um, tonight's lesson, you'll notice that I've been putting a PM format schedule, so to speak, uh, on the front of the bulletin and uh, doing that each week because throughout this year we're going to have a number of different formats. First of all, there is a suggestion box on the table out in the foyer, and if you've got a suggestion for a topic, please drop it in there. Someone did that, and so tonight, Wes is going to be addressing the suggested topic of judging others. So you might be interested in that. Uh, if you are, please come, and we'd encourage you to do that at 4 o'clock this afternoon. Next Sunday, and the Sunday following um, at 4 o'clock, we're going to have the first of our debates and uh, Wes and I will both be to, up here debating one another. The subject is instrumental music, and Wes is going to be, for the first week, defending the use of instruments, mechanical instruments of music, in worship to God. And I'm going to deny that, and then we're going to swap. And I'll be defending it the following week, and he'll deny it. And so I hope you'll find that an interesting study. We intend it to be, and uh, we're going to debate for real although we're going to be nice to each other while we do it. So, <laughs> um, so we encourage you to come uh, for that. I, I think you'll find it interesting. That's uh, all I have. That's enough, I guess. And so let's get into our topic. We're talking about this quarter, Order in My Church. As we look at our, our theme verse for the year, I will build my church, or in my church, I said for the year, for this quarter, Jesus said, upon this rock I will build my church. This morning... I want to talk about a phrase that comes from Ephesians chapter 2. I really like the way the King James translates this verse, uh, looking at what it says in the original. We'll talk a little bit about that later in the lesson. But the idea of the church being, quote, fitly framed together. And I want to really emphasize that this morning. So let's go back and talk about the church built upon one foundation and thus giving order to the church. You may remember this verse from the last sermon that I did. Um, Isaiah chapter 28 and verse 16, quoted several times in the New Testament, albeit uh, probably more from the Septuagint version, but nonetheless, Paul said, or Isaiah said, Behold, I lay in Zion. Zion would be that spiritual name for Jerusalem today, the church, the heavenly Jerusalem. But I lay in Zion for a foundation, a stone. It is a tried or tested stone. It is a precious, and precious in the sense of being valuable and scarce and, and all of that kind of thing. But a precious cornerstone. I'm going to emphasize that this morning. It is a sure foundation. And I really emphasized that in the last lesson. When we come to the New Testament, 
going to take parts of a couple of different passages. First of all, from 1 Peter chapter 2. If you'll turn there just briefly with me. You'll notice that Paul, or Peter, I'm stuck on Paul this morning, but Peter is talking about the idea of the church being built upon the foundation of Jesus. That is, we come to Christ as, verse 2, newborn babies. But we come to Christ also as living stones. And we are built upon, verse 5, we are built upon the foundation of Christ as a spiritual house. We are a holy priesthood. We offer up spiritual sacrifices that are acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. I'm going to really emphasize that idea, acceptable to God by Jesus Christ this morning. But in verse 6 he quotes, So also as it is contained in Scripture, Isaiah 28 obviously, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, one that is elect, Peter says, again precious, And he that believes on him, and you'll notice, shall not be confounded or confused or, as Paul would say in Romans 9, (coughs) excuse me, ashamed. And if you remember, that's the end result, the the, uh, natural end result of the idea of doing something in haste or rashly or unwisely, if you will. So this morning we're going to look at that chief cornerstone. And if you'll turn back with me to Ephesians chapter 2, let me add what Paul says here. In Ephesians 2, you'll notice he is talking about Jesus having broken down the middle wall of partition, or that which divided Jews from Gentiles. And then he goes on as he talks about Christians being no more strangers and foreigners and so forth. Then he says in verse 20, uh, in verse 20 we are built upon the foundation that foundation, Jesus, laid by the apostles and prophets. And again, he says, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. Now notice verse 21. In whom? <coughs> Maybe if I get one good one, I might be all right. <coughs> Let's hope that does. In whom? That is, in Jesus, verse 21. All the building. Now he speaks of the building of the church. That is, that which is built upon Jesus. In whom? In Jesus. All the building, then notice the phrase, fitly framed together. All Christians, these living stones that are compiled upon the foundation, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. And he makes it clear, verse 22. In whom you also are builded together for a habitation of God through the Spirit. Now, if we were to add those two together, it might read like this. Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone. He is elect. He is precious. That is, elect in the sense of he is exclusive. He is true. He is the one appointed, picked, if you will, by God. Precious. We talked about the value in him. He is the very foundation of the church. He is the foundation that the apostles and prophets laid. And as Paul would emphasize, another foundation no one can lay except that which is laid. And that is Jesus, 1 Corinthians 3. But he is also the chief cornerstone. And we want to talk about that this morning. In whom? In him, Jesus. All the building is, quote, fitly framed together. And if it is, it grows into a holy temple in the Lord. I think a lot of people in this world, and I believe you'd agree with me, many lose sight of how the church must be built. These passages are emphasizing the building 
of the church of Christ, of God, the one that belongs to him. And Paul warned us in a number of passages we've just cited that only one foundation, Jesus Christ, can be laid. But Paul also teaches, and the Bible also teaches in these various passages, that the church must be fitly framed together, carefully, according to that one cornerstone. Now, I asked in the bulletin this morning, and you may have looked at the questions or noted the questions, and I said, is there a difference? Because in these passages you see one foundation, or I lay in Zion a foundation, a chief cornerstone, and you see them quoted. Is there a difference between the foundation and the chief cornerstone? Well, depending on how you look at the question, the answer can be yes and no. If we look at it from the standpoint, is the same person the foundation who is the chief cornerstone? That would be yes. If we look at it from the standpoint, are they referencing the exact same idea? The answer is no, they are not. And we're going to talk about that. So we want to look and emphasize this morning the idea of the chief cornerstone in whom all the building is fitly framed together. Let's start with our foundation rock. You may remember this from the last sermon. And I said that Jesus Christ was the one foundation. This morning we will emphasize he is also the chief cornerstone in whom all the building, we as living stones, and that's what this would represent, this wall of rocks, stones. As living stones, we are built upon Jesus, and he is that foundation, that chief cornerstone. Now let's talk about that. The foundation. To briefly go back at what we were saying last time, I'll emphasize it, or sort of summarize it like this. Jesus is the one, notice I I singled out the word upon, or on whom the church is built. He's the foundation. He's the solid rock upon whom the church is is built. And what I mean by that, and what I think Scripture means by that, is that he is the beginning of a structure. He built this building when they did, and incidentally the date is out there on our own capstone or cornerstone out there. But when it was built, they would have started with the foundation. You don't start with the roof, kind of suspend it in the air and build down. We know that. I, I suppose in our day you might be able to accomplish that. I don't know. But we don't do it that way. We lay the foundation, we build upon it. And he is the beginning of the structure. He is the one on whom the building stands. Sometimes we talk about (coughs) a a tornado or or gale force winds knocking a building off its foundation. I've seen that happen, a house being knocked off its foundation. I've literally seen it happen, but I've seen the results of it. And you might have as well. It stands upon the foundation. The more solid the foundation, the more secure the building. The more it is, the better it is built, etc., you, you get the point. It is the one on whom the building stands. It is the support upon which it rests. It provides to the building its stability, its continuity, etc. If it's built well enough, there is a restaurant over here in Bloomfield. It was a house, literally, that was built in the 1600s. And it still stands, it stands firm. Because, and you can go over there to that restaurant, Montel and I did our last, uh, one of our, our last anniversaries. You can read about that place. They built that house literally to last a thousand years. Well, nearly 400 years later, it's still as strong as it was when it was built. It has an incredibly strong foundation. And that's one of the reasons why. 
But Jesus is also the chief cornerstone. Now, what does that mean? I've got to admit to you that for a while, <clears throat> I don't know how long, but as I would read these verses, I would think only in terms of foundation and building. And I would preach sermons, foundation, structure, building. And I would read the verses, and that chief cornerstone, <clears throat> I really took it to be just another way of describing the foundation. It's just another term or a phrase for it. It means that he's the biggest part of it. I don't believe that's what that is saying. So let's talk about what the cornerstone is. <clears throat> if Jesus is the foundation, he's the one upon whom the church is built. But if he's the chief cornerstone, he is the one, notice I, as I emphasize, according to whom the church is built. Now there's a little difference there. In fact, what it means is it gives the structure its shape. In fact, if we were to go on with that idea and that that analogy, and especially if we were to trace it back to ancient times when Isaiah would have said it, it would ensure that a building is square, it's true, it's right, it's straight. It would guide the building of the building, the construction of the building. It would guide it. It would provide, if you notice, the specs, the specifications, and you would build according to it. It would be the standard to go by. The standard that you would follow as you raise that structure, perhaps as you built it stone by stone or block by block. Every stone that would be placed in that building would be measured by it or according to it. Now, I think if you look at that and you begin to understand the way things were in ancient times, you begin to get the idea of why Isaiah said not only is Jesus the foundation, but he is the chief cornerstone. And why the writers such as Paul or Peter in 1 Peter 2 would pick up on that and say Jesus is the chief cornerstone. In fact, they would single him out. And they would talk about him being the stone that the builders, that is those Jews, etc., and others to follow, rejected. And how that he would not be accepted. Or, if you were looking at the analogy, people would not want to go according to Him. They would not want to build according to His guidance. They would not want their structure, their church, to be guided by the specs He provides. When Jesus said, I will build my church, He meant that the church would be built like He wants. Exactly as He is. No changes, no variations. So I would not come along as a preacher or a teacher or in some you know, religious circles, a pastor, the leader, or whatever you want to call it. I would not come along and say, hey, they did such and such back then this way, but let's try this. Let's do it this way. And you would sit there and say, yeah, that sounds good. I mean, after all, we're 2,000 years removed from the original building, so let's do it this way. No, Jesus is saying, I want it done exactly. Exactly like this. Be like me. Be exactly like me. Build exactly as I would build. Now let's go a little further with that. Let's talk about the cornerstone in ancient times. Not the ceremonial one that you would see out on this building or many others. And you can see them all over the place around here. I like that kind of thing. Noting when a building was built, you know, who it was built by and all of that kind of thing. But let's go back to ancient times. 
The cornerstone, or the cornerstone, literally. We've made it into one word in our day and time. But the cornerstone was the principal stone, main one, most important one is the idea, that was literally placed at the corner of a building in ancient times. It was the first stone set in the construction of a building. In other words, if you think about it, we might build a building like this, and we might come, and, and if you've ever watched the building, they may lay it out, you know, have a wood frame out here, and pour, quote-unquote, a slab, concrete. Well, obviously, they didn't have that back in ancient times. Not like we have it, of course. So they're gathering stones, and they're literally putting together a foundation, and they start with one main, one principal stone. That's the cornerstone. The first stone set in the construction of a building. It was usually large, sometimes the largest. It functioned like a blueprint stone. In other words, if you ha- and it would be the most perfect one they could find. And if you had this stone, you would put it out there first, and basically what you were saying, the statement you were making is, this is how this building is going to go. It was a blueprint stone that determined the shape of a building. It determined the size of a building. Obviously, if you're going to build a big structure, you're going to want a large cornerstone to start with. Solid, firm, etc. It determined its size. It determined its dimensions. The angles, the ratios, etc., etc., etc. of the structure it supported. The other stones of the building then are set in reference to that cornerstone. They don't veer away from it. They don't go against it. They don't, they're not put there because they're unlike and they don't fit. No, they're set in the structure according to, in reference to, the cornerstone. It's the most important stone in the building, and you can't emphasize that enough. It had to be level. It had to be square so that all the others could be set from it. I would get you to go online, and and one of the most perfect examples of this, and I've I've lost it, I can't think of the name, but it is a structure down of the ancient Native Americans in South America, and for the life of me, I can't think of the name. But you can see pictures of it. Gigantic stones. And there there is literally no space between these stones. Notice the ones at the bottom. Notice the one in the corner. Take a look at that and note the structure built upon it. I'll try to find the name. If anybody wants to look at that, I'll I'll find the name for you. But it had to be level. It had to be square so all the others could be set from it. If not, if it wasn't level, if it wasn't square, think about it. If you've got a stone that's like this and you start trying to build up from it, the building is going to lean and then it's going to fall. It won't be secure. It won't be stable. That stone, because of its perfection, because of its importance, was generally laid with a solemn ceremony. You can imagine Solomon and the building of the temple and the gathering of the people, and you can literally see the ceremony, the celebration, in the Bible recorded for us. But it's because of all of that that surrounded the cornerstone that we have a lot of our modern practices when, when the construction of a building it started. I don't know if you ever wondered about all of that. You know, where did all that come from? All that cutting of the tape and the giant scissors and all that stuff. It traces back to ancient times and the building of a structure. Now, let's make some points. 
Following the chief cornerstone of the church, if we do that, that's the basis of order. Remember we cited verses in 1 Corinthians 14 and we talked about the disorder, the confusion as the King James puts it, how things can be haphazard, scattered in our thinking, all of that kind of thing. Well, if we follow the specifications of the chief cornerstone, it gives order. A church properly constructed upon it is solid. It's going to be solid. It's going to be unshakable. It's going to be a a building, a church, a kingdom that cannot be moved. Turn over with me, if you will, to Hebrews 12. Let's read about the church. And let's note what God says about it. In Hebrews 12, start with me about verse 18. Now, there's quite a lengthy passage here talking about the church with a lot of terms from the Old Testament. And the writer says, verse 18, You are not come unto the mountain, like they did in ancient times, the Jews did, that might be touched, or that burned with fire, nor have you come into blackness and darkness and tempest or a storm, and the sound of a trumpet and the voice of words, verse 19, the voice that they heard entreated that the work should not be, or that the word should not be spoken to them any more. For they could not endure that which was commanded, verse 20. Now he's speaking of the whole coming to the mountain and the law of Moses being given and all of that kind of thing. They couldn't endure it. They couldn't abide in it. They couldn't keep it perfectly. And if so much as a beast were to touch the mountain, it should be stoned or thrust through, shot with an arrow would be the idea. And so terrible was the sight that Moses said, I exceedingly fear and quake. No, you've not come to that. All of the, fa- the, the, the fallacies, the imperfections, maybe is a better term, of the law of Moses and that whole system have been corrected by the chief cornerstone. Notice how he says, beginning in verse 22, You are coming to Mount Zion. Behold, I lay in Zion a foundation, a tried stone, a tested stone, a precious one, a chief cornerstone. You are coming to Mount Zion. And unto the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, as he called it, to an innumerable company of angels, you have come, verse 23, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn, Jesus, of course, being the firstborn, the ones who are written in heaven, you have come to the God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of just men or righteous men who have been made complete or perfect, no longer imperfect. No longer something against them, Hebrews 7. But no, complete in Christ. And you come to Jesus, verse 24, who is the mediator of a new covenant. Notice, a perfect one. And to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. Now, we don't have time this morning, but you can see that he's drawing from everywhere in this book. And you can trace back to what he has said about all these different things. See then, verse 25. That you do not refuse him that speaks. For if they escape not who refused him who spoke on earth, much more shall not we escape if we turn away from him that speaks from heaven. Now what's he talking about? What he began the book with. In these days God speaks by Jesus. And you must go by Jesus. You must go according to Jesus. You must follow exactly what Jesus wants. Because even in the Old Testament, If they didn't go by Moses and the law given through Moses, which wasn't even perfect, if they were not acceptable to God, how much less then do you think you will be acceptable 
are accepted by God if you refuse the one who speaks from heaven, Jesus. Now he goes on with this. Whose voice then shook the earth, but now he has promised, saying, Yet once more I will shake not the earth only, but also heaven. We might say shake up the idea. We understand that terminology. And this word, verse 27, yet once more, signifies the removing of those things that are shaken. That is the old things. The law of Moses and all those things that went exclusively with it. He's removed that. They are things that could be shaken because they weren't perfect. It'd be like building a building on a stone that is imperfect. And that's exactly what it was. And you could find flaws in it and a strong enough force could shake it, literally. But no, that's not what we've come to. That's not how we're built. He says, those things that cannot be shaken remain, verse 27. Verse 28, wherefore, that is why, we receiving, or having received, maybe literally, a kingdom which cannot be moved, let us have favor. Now notice what he does with it. If we're part of a kingdom that is so solid and built upon such a sure voice, and according to such a, an absolute plan that it cannot be shaken, if we, if we are built that way, then let's have grace. Let's have favor. And what does he mean by that? Whereby we may serve God, notice, acceptably, with reverence and godly fear. If God built the church, and that's what Jesus said he would do, if God built it, if Jesus built it, and it is built exactly, perfectly, as God wants it, who in the world would I be to come along and say, hey, I can do it better? And how does God feel about it if I choose to do that? Our God is a consuming fire. It will not stand. We look at passages like Daniel 2. I'm not going to turn back there, but I'm sure you know it. We sing this in lyrics of our songs. The kingdom, it shall stand forever and ever and ever it shall stand. Again, he repeats that in Daniel 7 and verse 14. It is a kingdom without end. It, do, it is never shaken. It will never be moved off its foundation. Well, people will leave. They will choose to no longer be part of it. But that building still stands. That church Jesus built will be here the day Jesus comes back. 1 Thessalonians 4 promises it. Even in Luke chapter 1, at the announcement you know, of the birth of John and the birth of Jesus, as all of that was being announced by the angels and so forth, it was quoted, of his kingdom and his government there will be no end. There will never be a time when the church ends, is finished on this earth. And there will never be a time when he is not Lord of Lords and King of Kings. Never once. Not one day, not one time. And so we might conclude by saying this. If I were going to build something, and I have, I've not really been a carpenter, but I've been, you know, the flunky, the gopher, you know, the carpenter's helper. And sometimes a carpenter would come along, and let's say we were building some building, whatever it is. And there's going to be a lot of studs, a lot of two-by-fours. Some of you know well what I'm talking about. Some of you a lot better than I do. But if he came along and he said, I measured this board according to this exact measuring stick. It is exactly this length. 
I want you to take each one of these boards. Now, I've done this. I want you to lay it on all these two-by-fours over here. And they're all maybe a foot too long or eight inches too long or whatever it might be. I want you to lay this down here and mark it with a pencil. And then we're going to come along and we're going to cut. And I want you to take this same board, cut exactly like I want it, to the exact length I want it, and I want you to lay it on there and, and mark each one. Now, here's what I don't want you to do. I can remember this back, the first job I ever had, and I think it was the first day. He said, what I do not want you to do is lay this board cut to the exact specifications on this 2x4 and mark it, and then cut it, and then take that one you just cut and lay it on the next one. He said, because here's what's going to happen. He said, you're going to mark it, and you're going to take that one cut, you're going to lay it on the next one, and you're going to cut that one and lay it on the next one. By the time you get to 20 or 25, this board you just cut will be nowhere near the one you started with. Now, later on, I decided I was going to build me a little shed. And I'm stubborn. You guys know that. So I thought, you know, how dumb. I don't want to cut all these boards. I get tired, you know, doing the same thing over and over. So I'm going to do it just like the guy said, don't do it. I think that thing was about three-quarters of an inch off by the time I finished. Because you have to meticulously go by the exact standard. Let me tell you what happens if a person sits and says, or a group of people sit and say, Michael knows the Bible pretty well. Wes knows the Bible pretty well. Let's just go by what they say. Then the next generation goes by what you thought you were going by. The next generation still does the same. You know what's going to happen when you get down the road a little bit? It ain't going to be nothing like the original. But if you keep going back to the exact specifications of the original, if every generation does that, then 2,000 years later, or 5,000 years later, or however long afterwards, is going to be what the Lord wanted built, according to the chief cornerstone. So if you cut one and you use that to measure the next and so on and so on, you're going to end up with a mess. And we're warned about that. And this is where I'm going to pick up in the next lesson. But we're warned not to measure ourselves by ourselves. Not to commend ourselves. That is, you know... I believe so-and-so because Michael believes it, and Michael believes it perhaps because Dale believed it, and Dale believes it perhaps by... I don't even know who taught Dale. Maybe his father. That's not why you believe what you believe. If it is, then I encourage you in the strongest terms this morning, pick this up and listen to it before you listen to me. That's what you need to do. We're warned not to measure ourselves by ourselves. We're warned to go according to the rules. The canon. And we'll talk a little bit about that in the next lesson. Galatians 6 and verse 16. Are the passages that Georgie read for us in Philippians 3. People veer away from the rule. That is the standard. The canon. The measuring stick. It's this. And this is the only one that's true. Let God be true and every man a liar. That's what the Apostle Paul said. And that's, that's where we need to stand. Built upon the foundation, built upon the chief cornerstone. Are you here this morning and not a child of God? But you do believe in Jesus. You believe that He is the foundation of the church. You believe that He is 
the chief cornerstone. You know that he's true. You know that his value is limitless. You know that everything he says is exactly right. And you believe that. Because you know he is the Son of God. And you'll confess that. Maybe this morning you're ready to repent, to change your life, and to live your life exactly as the Lord wants you to live it. And you'll be baptized this morning. Because you know he has said, if you'll be baptized, your sins will be washed away. Acts 22, verse 16. You know that you will be a child of God if you'll submit to him. And maybe it is that you're here this morning and you say, you know, I was baptized sometime in the past, but I have not been honoring my Lord. I haven't been living according to exactly what he says. And I want to change that. I want to leave this place today with a renewed commitment to live exactly as he wants me to live. Please come while we stand and sing.